Many cities that we've seen around the country, around the globe, are actually looking to their park systems. And they're finding that, hey, we've got roads that go through parks. Traffic volumes are very low. Most often those roads are not critical links in the street network in terms of getting folks to and from the hospital, for example, at this point, or they're not major bus routes. So uh, closing them is actually a relatively easy thing. And you know, maybe these are the kinds of roads that should always be closed because they run through parks. Hi, everyone. This is John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host here on the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Mike Leiden with Street Plans to give us an update from his vantage point in Brooklyn, New York. But before we dive into my conversation with him, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast, encourage you to subscribe on your preferred listening platform so you won't miss any new releases and can easily access previous episodes. And finally, assuming you are enjoying these discussions, we'd be honored if you'd help us spread the word by sharing within your networks. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to have you along for the ride. Mike. How are you? I'm well, John. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So where are you joining us from? Uh, I am sitting at my kitchen table in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood called Clinton Hill, which is just east of downtown Brooklyn. Now, since we are well into week number, I don't even know whatever it is of the uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and shelter in place, I'm assuming that you have become quite acquainted with your uh, kitchen table there. It's true. And in fact, it's kind of been a revolving. <laughs> my office is revolving at the moment. Um, we actually have another apartment on the same floor that my sister-in-law lives in. So... We are rotating a lot between the two apartments, just given the childcare situation and whoever's in charge of the kids that day means that somebody or some people can be in the other apartment doing work. So it's quite an interesting situation, but we're very fortunate to have that, that option at the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so you are in really the belly of the beast. You're in the hot zone, in, literally, right now with this current situation. Why don't you sort of share with us what you're experiencing and what you're seeing. And we'll we'll take this conversation and weave it towards, I think, what you and I are, are probably most interested in, and as well as many of the listeners, is the redefining and the reuse of our public realm and our streetscapes. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, New York has been under the magnifying glass now for several weeks. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been following some of this, but you know, it's a very strange time in New York. This is a, a city that people live here and live their lives between buildings and in other people's buildings and less so their own in a number of ways. So for all of us to be home a lot more creates a very strange kind of vibe in our neighborhoods and on the streets. Clearly there's still things happening. There are people still taking the bus and the subway. Uh, there are people walking dogs, going for runs and walks. Our parks are busier at times than they normally would be. For example, if you go at 2 p.m. when it's been sunny lately, it's like busier than any day, any holiday, typically on a weekday, right? So it's just, it's both like exciting and great to see people finding space and finding the opportunity to be physically active, um, but also very concerning in that obviously not everybody follows protocol or people become a little more paranoid at each other 
uh, in the sense that you see people who are sitting very close. Are they couples? Are they families? Are they observing this all the time uh, when they're around other people? In terms of the distancing, it's really those questions come up and it's a really challenging thing because we're so used to be rubbing shoulders and, you know, just being in proximity to each other, crammed into subways and streets and public spaces. And that's just kind of the, the beauty of New York is that you're so close with everybody. And we are we obviously have a lot less of that now. I'm personally a lot less mobile and active. You know, my range, other than going for, you know, a run, my range has shrunk from miles down to about a quarter mile even less. Uh, again, the, the beauty of living in New York is that I can get everything I need without spending a lot of time exposed outside. So grocery store across the street, you know, the parks and playgrounds on either side of our building, which I, I talked about earlier on a webinar with CNU this week is a really great gift, but they've also just closed down all the playgrounds. So that option has been taken away from us and our family and our two-year-old son and his playmate who he's with every day. So uh, this is getting even more interesting and the need for opening the streets and other types of spaces to public use just became even more critical. So in summary, you know, New York is not completely dead. There's definitely times a day when it's eerily quiet, but there's other times when you feel like it's as busy as Chicago might be on a normal day. You know, it's still, things, things are still happening. People are outside, but it's all with a very different kind of vibe. And, you know, on the flip side, I would just mention too that New Yorkers are, you know, amazing to each other right now. The amount of support inside of our apartment building for each other, the concern for uh, senior citizens in our, in our building. We have a whole network of floor captains and floor captains are responsible for checking in on neighbors. And there's people who are able to go to the store and leave food or other items at our neighbor's doors with all these new policies that have been put into place, you know, one family per elevator ride, the hours of the laundry room have been expanded so that people can space out and only having one person in there at a time. It's just, it's really interesting to see how nimble we can be at the building scale and how supportive we can be. And I know that's being replicated all over the city right now. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. So I wanted to highlight that as well. Let's talk a little bit about this this trend that we're seeing all around the country, all around the world, of cities scrambling to try to expand public space. The motor vehicle volumes no longer dictate that they dominate the public realm. And what have you been noticing? Yeah, I've been keeping track of these initiatives on a spreadsheet, which I know will be linked in the notes to this podcast pretty closely. I just immediately was fascinated by one New York announcing it was looking into, and of course, all the advocacy groups and people here pushing to open some streets for use. But, you know, as always, inspired by what Bogota did very quickly on a dime they decided to leverage their open streets network, which every Sunday and holiday encompasses 77 miles of streets around the city. It's just this incredible thing that they're able to do on a weekly basis. And having built that muscle and having the capacity and staff and the resources in play to enact that as a permanent, permanent is the wrong word, but you know, as a daily measure is just such a lesson for every city. And, you know, New York has tried to do a few of those types of things. And it uh, largely, so far, in my opinion, has failed. You know, we've got a couple segments of bikeway that were existing, but lacking protection that needed protection that have been since filled in with orange traffic barrels and 
couple forms of barricades, but I'm talking like about a mile, a little over a mile in total. So in a city with 6,000 miles of streets, that is just not adequate. And then there was also a program that was trialed for four days last weekend, Friday to Monday, to open streets, each segment about a quarter mile in length. But each of these streets was staffed by way too many police officers and um, it's over the weekend, three out of the four days, it was very rainy. So it just, people weren't out, people weren't leveraging. It was not a good use of police resources at this, you know, this, this time. And there really isn't a muscle that the city is leveraging or using that incorporates a wider or more creative, you know, group of people or creative approach in terms of, you know, who could be helping manage and maintain these time of day closures. And, you know, I don't think anyone feels like this has to be a 24 seven thing, but could it be, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., you know, could it be 1 p.m. to 6 p.m.? You know, just give people a time and a sense that, oh, I can go there. And, you know, if the playground is closed, I can go there. So in any event, you know, many cities that we've seen around the country, around the globe are actually looking to their park systems. And they're finding that, hey, we've got roads that go through parks. Traffic volumes are very low. Most often those roads are not critical links in the street network in terms of getting folks to and from the hospital, for example, at this point, or they're not major bus routes. So uh, closing them is actually a relatively easy thing. And, you know, maybe these are the kinds of roads that should always be closed because they run through parks. And, you know, Minneapolis and Portland, uh, where else? Calgary to, to an extent, Philadelphia, uh, a number of cities, Duluth in Minnesota, um, a number of cities have done this. And it's really low-hanging fruit. And it's helpful to know, hey, I can go there and it's like a mile or two where I can go for a run or a walk and I can be in nature with trees and it'll be quieter and it's easier to space ourselves out. That's just such an easy and important thing for cities to do. And so no matter the scale, right, if you're Duluth or you're New York City, you can, you can probably think about ways to do that. And, you know, everything from that kind of intervention to policy, you know, bike share systems are being made free for essential workers that helps keep them out of the subway and buses for, you know, which is a, a great thing in terms of distancing. I know the, the bike share operators, both in Chicago and New York, are doing a lot more to, to sterilize and clean the bikes for more frequency just to alleviate some of those concerns or the possibilities of transmission. But, you know, there's so many people in our city that are, need to move around at this time to support other people in our city. So giving them means to do it, whether it's for recreation or more for transportation, is, is critical. And then maybe at the smallest scale, what we've seen around the globe, and it's really started in Australia and then spread quickly across North America, and it will probably continue to spread, is the removal of egg buttons, as we call them, for pedestrians at intersections, right? Those buttons you have to press to enable the pedestrian signal to come on. And something that's been much derided by lots of uh, livable streets advocates for years in terms of needing permission to cross the street by pressing a button has always seemed demeaning, but never more so than in these times when you know that that button is being pressed potentially by hundreds or thousands of people a day. It's not very settling. So a number of cities, large and small across the globe, and increasingly here in the U.S. are uh, removing those signals or the requirement for those buttons to be pressed and getting that pedestrian signal on what's called recall so that it you know there's an interval in which it will be turned on for the pedestrians, that's more frequent. So that's an interesting one where, hey, just like our parks, maybe we don't need beg buttons, actually. Maybe we could just always help have a little more uh, parity on our streets by giving pedestrians the, the, the dignity of being able to cross without pressing a button. I can't imagine a pedestrian in New York City waiting for an indicator to, to say walk when they look in all direction and there's no cars. That's right. 
Yeah, no, I live on a pretty busy intersection. We've got about 6,000 cars a day meeting a street of about 8,000 cars per day. So it's not, it's not insanely busy, but it's, it's a pretty steady roll of cars, uh, you know, through this intersection. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, have my tea and breakfast with my son and he likes to look out the window. Usually we're looking at people, you know, going into the subway station across the street. We're looking at the buses roll down the Avenue and it's a really exciting time, but now it's interesting because it's very quiet and there's so few cars that you can hear the birds singing and we can also, you know, sit here and count the number of people, particularly in the morning, who are out for a jog or walking the dog, and they probably outnumber the vehicular traffic by, you know, five to one at this point um, at certain times of the day. So you're, you're absolutely right that the, the signals aren't really serving a purpose, uh, even at a relatively busy intersection at this time uh, in the city. So there's a lot of, lot of lessons to be pulled in terms of what we're experiencing now and, you know, what this pretends for the future moving forward. Yeah, so let's stick with that and try to pull out our, our crystal balls a little bit and and maybe also pull out our our wish list of things that we'd like to see uh, learnings from this experience of, you know, hopefully this will continue forward or will happen or uh, maybe it's just the spirit of people understanding and, and viewing their streets differently. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it. I mean, you think about the power of open streets on a normal type of you know day. It, it's the biggest takeaway that people always say when they attend the first one to their hundredth one is that you just see cities and streets differently. You have a different perspective on you know what could be possible or how enjoyable at least it can be to be out recreating and socializing with people in the middle of our streets. And you know if that is the only takeaway that people take from this pandemic and they say, Hey, you know, I kind of really missed that part of this challenge is that I liked being able to walk the dog when it was relatively quiet and I had to worry about speeding cars, you know, or crossing the street with a stroll or out for a jog, whatever it may be. You know, people take that perspective with them and maybe at the next, you know, community board meeting here in New York, there's people who are a little bit less concerned about reallocating space to people. That would be a, a great thing. I think, you know, generally what I'm seeing from a policy and planning perspective is that so many cities are not prepared for this moment, that there is um, a lack of resiliency in the capacity to respond to these events or, or an event like this. And again, what might be seen as um, a nice to have or a luxury is now become a necessity. And cities need to think long and hard about how to enable a response that's not only nimble, but doesn't rely solely on city resources at this time. You know, I I want our city to be focusing on the worst case scenarios that are happening across our neighborhoods and taking care of people who are sick. That is literally the most important thing. But below that, people should be able to still have a quality of life while they're mostly locked indoors. And that really requires a dense, you know, compact walkable place to have access to streets. And if we had a program in in New York or cities across the country had programs where we had trained volunteers or um, a core people who could be out managing some of these spaces during certain times of the day, I think that would go a long way. And it's something that we could continue to do on a weekly basis. You know, there's a lot of streets in my neighborhood that could be open to local access only, you know, driving um, on Saturdays and Sundays. They don't have to be through routes at all. So that's that's a big thing on my wish list is that a number of cities will come up with a way to do this and, and trust people, trust residents, trust that, you know, there are, you know, hundred people in my building. And I'm sure for 
out of six hours in a day, we could find six people who would take an hour-long shift for this. Trust the fact that we have crossing guards who are literally on duty still, even though schools aren't open. They're still standing at the corners. Those could be the folks who are managing access for emergency vehicles or for local residents who happen to be driving onto their block or off their block. Those folks could be just literally throwing out a cone or a barricade and uh, letting people buy as needed, but otherwise letting it be an open, an open block, an open street. You know, we've got so many streets like that in New York where the schools are embedded within the fabric of res- residential neighborhoods. And it's those schools which are often co-located with playgrounds, which are now shut. So it would seem to make sense that you've got the staffing resources already there. Rewriting that job description for the next three or four weeks would make a lot of sense. And then having that be something that crossing guards are enabled, empowered, and trained to do on maybe a more regular basis would be great. Like, wouldn't you love, here's a wish list item, wouldn't you love to see schools all have car-free streets, you know, within a block perimeter at, you know, 7.30 to 9 and and 2 o'clock to 3.30 in the afternoon? That just seems like kind of a no-brainer that we could be enacting some of that approach and some of those policies now when it's a real strong public health issue. Yeah. And you just mentioned public health and and certainly some of the statistics that we've seen in in terms of air quality and how much that has cleaned up is hopefully a positive sign for folks to call for and and maybe ask to have more open streets events. Let's have a car free day and let's have an opportunity to sort of clean the air up. And that was one thing we kind of liked, you know, from this very, very challenging period was, you know, having the ability to hear the birds and, and be able to enjoy our public realm without feeling like we were putting our, our lives at risk. Uh, I like what you said, too, about the, the fact that this will hopefully encourage cities to have a plan in place and to be thinking about what happens the next time. Because I, I certainly don't think that this is going to be a once every hundred years type of cur- uh, occurrence. I mean, it just feels like to me that we could see these types of things or other similar types of things coming up time and again. And yeah, and think about it not just from the pandemic standpoint, right? But all these resiliency challenges, whether it's floods, massive snowstorms, um, you know, earthquakes, fires. I mean, there's so many things that cities are contending with where a, a general policy and approach seems like it's really needed, but also then with underneath that specific ways to respond to those issues. I feel like you know, most cities do have some sort of emergency response plan and way to handle transportation, all those challenges. Uh, that's, you know, that's as true as, uh, as anything, but there really is nothing calibrated for this moment right now that we've seen other than cities quickly relying on open streets and parks to be a muscle they can flex right now, but albeit in a bit of a reactionary way, not really in a coordinated, proactive way, knowing that this is something that's one of the many tools in the toolbox. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier uh, the low-hanging fruit opportunity of decreasing uh, motor vehicle traffic through the parks. And, and you're absolutely right. That was one of the things that one of the trends that we saw uh, in the last couple of weeks of cities uh, around the country striving towards. And of course, New York went through that process of decreasing the amount of motor vehicles traveling within some of their their biggest parks. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Central Park and Prospect Park are entirely car free except for emergency access. Please pardon this very brief intermission in my conversation with Mike Leiden. 
I just want to send a sincere thank you to our donors and sponsors that have contributed to Active Towns on our various platforms, Patreon, Facebook, and on our website. As a small nonprofit, your individual contributions and corporate sponsorships are crucial. We simply would not be able to bring you this content without your generosity. Now let's get back to the episode. So Mike, let's rewind the clock a little bit to a few weeks ago before the COVID-19 pandemic took place. What were you engaged in and what were you excited about for 2020? Well, we've got probably more projects than we've ever had the firm and a good number of those. I think I last counted, we had 13 projects that we were intending to physically install with communities. Well, hey, Mike, before we have you dive into that, why don't you explain a little bit more about the firm? Right. Okay. So Street Plans is a, a planning and design firm, and we're just over 10 years old. And we focus a lot on uh, public spaces, cycling, walking, and, and, and neighborhood design. And one of our key methods is what we have called tactical urbanism now for a decade. And that is a way for us to work with a wide variety of partners in various communities to actually try ideas out for a certain period of time. Oftentimes it's, it's you know, could be a weekend, could be a week, sometimes it's a year or longer. And so we physically install projects often with dozens if not hundreds of volunteers and city staff and other you know, organizational partners to, to really let people experience transformation in real time so that we can make more informed decisions and then really test out and measure what in those designs is working, what do people like, what do they don't before communities move forward with longer term, larger investments. So when I say we had a number of those types of projects lined up this year, I was very excited about uh, May through October, which is always our busy time of year for doing the installations. And, you know, we do a lot of planning and design work um, year round, but we do a lot of the planning for those actual implementation projects from, you know, December, usually through the early part of the summer. And so fortunately, this is happening at a time when we're typically not installing projects. I think we have two warm climate projects, one in Key West that's been delayed until August. And then we've got a slight delay for one in California, in Southern California. But otherwise, you know, we're still kind of moving forward with the schedule as planned for, for most of these, at least, you know, so far. If more of these get pushed off, then it's going to be concerning and a real disappointment because we build momentum as we get closer to the date of installation with communities. And if we have to delay this to 2021, it's going to take the wind out of our sails in terms of a community engagement perspective. So I'm still hopeful that we in four to six weeks are you know beyond the worst of this pandemic and we can move forward as generally planned with most of these projects, but we'll see. Right. And hopefully uh, keep our, our fingers crossed that uh, this doesn't rage back uh, in in the fall. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned tactical urbanism. You have a book of the same name. Why don't you share with the listeners a little bit about what prompted you to, to write that book? Yeah, I mean, this this idea goes back, you know, more than a decade. And the last time we had a major economic crisis was exactly when I was starting this firm with my partner, Tony. And um, I was inspired by a lot of things that were happening around the globe in response to the Great Recession. And seeing how communities were continuing momentum and even fast-tracking projects that were low-cost and very experiential, or even in, in a number of times, uh, many examples, and this is still happening to this day, where projects are being installed just by citizens without any formal buy-in or permission from city leaders. 
and then inspiring those city leaders to take that you know, project and make it more permanent is very exciting to me. And we have a philosophy, I should say, at Street Plans of sharing best practices and sharing what we've learned and trying to collectively put those learnings into as many people's hands as possible so that every town and city can become more livable and safer and a better place to be. So the same impulse that I had more than a decade ago in researching and writing the first tactical urbanism guide, which was and still is available online for free, it's the same impulse in terms of developing a spreadsheet, which I briefly mentioned, where we're tracking all these initiatives across the globe, what cities are doing, um, or the Google photo album that I've created for people to just document and share what's happening on their city streets. Um, I just love that we can leverage technology in this way, and we can get lots of people to access information when it's free and it's digital. So we, you know, we've, we took that first guide that we developed, and we developed a second one, then a third one, a fourth one, and a fifth one. And we've partnered with lots of different groups in the production of these guides around the globe, including Italy, South America, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, we're working on one right now in Japan, as well as an adaption of a design guide for tactical urbanism projects in France. Um, so we have a lot of partners that help us disseminate and contribute to this, this research and these ongoing tools. And then beyond that, we do have this design and materials guide, which we're soon to release a second volume of. We do have a full-length book uh, that we published with Island Press in 2015, which we are close to embarking on a second edition of that book, given that we've learned so much in five years. And man, what, what inspiration to start writing again. I mean, you couldn't ask for more inspiration than what's happening right now with the, the pandemic, to be honest. And that, that will probably feature pretty prominently in the second edition of the book. And then we've, you know, we've applied, we've got free guides. Just basically go to tacticalurbanismguide.com and you'll find all the free resources that we have there. Tactical transit and asphalt art and public space stewardship guidelines. These are things we've developed as best practices for communities. And we've learned a lot from others as well in all this, this writing and research and application. So um, again, it's a big part of our, our work and our philosophy on how we approach uh, change making in cities. Yeah, you just mentioned something, asphalt art. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so the asphalt art is a way to take, you know, geometric changes to our streets. And that's a wonky way of saying adding more space for people <laughs> and making it really beautiful. So starting maybe three or four years ago, um, we really started to understand that working with local artists and bringing in our own artistic sensibilities or design sensibilities to our projects could make these projects a lot more appealing and enduring for communities because of their beauty. And they're more engaging when there's some sort of you know, beautiful piece of art engaged on the street with, with people who are using that street. So we partnered with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Bloomberg Cities Group who funded this effort to do the, the writing and research with them. And then we are promoting uh, not only the work generally and the best practice guide that we developed with them, but we're also involved with, with them moving forward on a number of projects where 10 cities wrote applications for $25,000 grants to install asphalt art projects. So there'll be 10 of those coming out of the ground as soon as some of this starts to die down in the coming months. So yeah, asphalt art is a really great way to add beauty and, and function to your streets. Yeah, and it's cool. I, I know Dana has uh, uh, posted quite a few photos of, you know, sort of the overhead shots of of what it looks like when you're looking down as a bird flies and and or if you happen to live nearby in a in a taller building. It's it's really quite impressive to see both at 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 ground level but also from above. Right. Yeah, you know, a lot of that work is inspired from from Portland, Oregon and their intersection repair efforts, which was, you know, citizen-led work to paint beautiful murals in the middle of intersections to make them feel more like 
you know, a square or a public space. And so we've taken that idea and we apply it to all sorts of different types of, you know, street redesign projects in the public realm. Yeah. You mentioned Portland there and that intersection treatment that takes place. They are traffic calmed streets. So these streets are, are these intersections are, are one of the tools in their toolbox, including small footprint uh, traffic circles to, to slow the vehicle speeds down. And many of the streets have diverters so that cars can't go through, but bikes and peds can. And it just, it, it makes for a really wonderful way to get around quite comfortably. You can get to the schools, you can get to the parks, you can get to many of the the corner stores and and, and restaurants that still exist in those neighborhoods uh, without driving. You can you can go miles upon miles, you know, by linking together many of those. I'm you, you sort of mentioned that earlier is as maybe that's something that this situation that we're in right now might encourage more of that sort of treatment. I think it's it's one of the lessons is that, you know, our streets are more elastic in terms of their use than maybe was previously thought and that we can allow access by motor vehicles but also rebalance those streets and even tip that balance more in the favor of other people using the street while still providing essential things like deliveries and emergency access and delivery, you know, those sorts of um, uses are still critical. But yeah, I think people are, are alert to that idea more than ever right now. And then being able to backfill that awareness with actual infrastructure changes and programmatic changes is a huge opportunity uh, at this moment. Let's shift towards concerns. One of the concerns that that I have with how this is all played out is is how dramatically uh, transit is being impacted. What concerns do you have? I mean, that's a that's a big one for sure. I mean, I live in the the most transit served city in North America, so the health of our system, which is always in question, is now never been more threatened. You know, when we had Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012. That was, was a major blow to the transit system. And I was thinking about this actually earlier today. The response was incredible by the MTA. The way they were able to leverage their capacity to get those subway lines back up and running. And, and honestly, in still some ways, still repairing a lot of them while still allowing use is just a, a huge accomplishment. But, you know, we're still recovering from that time. And this is a very different kind of threat. It's not a physical threat to the system. It's a funding threat. So they will get some relief as an agency and other transit agencies will get relief out of this this latest package that was passed by Congress, but it's not going to be enough. And particularly if this becomes something that returns with any level of frequency, all of a sudden you've got 87% of people who used to use the transit system on a daily basis not using it. You know, that's all those fares go out out the door, literally are gone, evaporated. So the financial health is probably the most important concern or biggest concern I have as it relates to, to transit. Another concern is that we squander this moment, you know, as a country, as livable streets advocates, that we don't take a coordinated approach to this and embed these kinds of ideas for the longer term and make a plan for the next pandemic or the next challenge and get those to be operational. If we don't do that now, with any luck, the economy will return and we'll see jobs return and life will go back to quote unquote normal. But there are many things in that normal life where I think we still want to improve upon. And this is a chance to fast track that. So we, we have this potential threat of not being able to accomplish that. So I'm concerned about that part of it for sure. 
Yeah, and I'm not so sure I'm I'm as concerned that the advocates will squander the opportunity. My fear is that making cities more livable from a walking biking perspective is, is going to be, you know, first on the chopping block. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a concern or risk. And it's obviously a concern for the health of our business is that so many of our clients and projects are public sector and there's going to be a lag, right? So retail, restaurants, those jobs basically evaporate overnight. Um, but we're still seeing RFPs let out. We're still, you know, that money's been programmed for this year. There will be projects that happen and great ones that happen for the coming, you know, probably four to 12 months. But after that, you know, after this next fiscal year ends in uh, end of June, yeah, the budget is going to change dramatically, at least for the next 12 to 18 months, I think, in cities and and probably some thereafter as well. So um, I think our argument has to be one that you can accomplish a lot of these goals with very inexpensive materials. And this isn't uh, an argument I make when people say, well, tactical urbanism is a big city thing. I say, well, you might see really large scale or impressive examples from large cities, but it's actually the easiest thing to do. And sometimes the only thing you can do and fund in a small town um, because you you don't have the big budgets. And so it, it can't be an excuse that we allow cities and politicians to lean on in the coming months and years that they can't afford the walk bike public space infrastructure because it's the cheapest of the infrastructure that we invest in. You know, I'm just thinking about your hometown in Austin, the plans that you have for the highway right to the middle of downtown, is it 9 billion or something crazy? Um, something crazy like that. Yeah. Th- those plans have to end. Those are, you know, those are, those are not productive plans and they're not going to lead to the longer term outcomes that we're seeking in terms of livability, public safety and health. Uh, climate change, economy, those are not it. That's not it. That's not the project we should be spending $9 billion on. If you took one-tenth of that and spent it on better transportation, level streets infrastructure, you could cover most of the city of Austin. So, you know, we have to keep beating that drum and not forget that our priorities have been misplaced and been putting way too much financial support on what we consider normal for too long. And we can rethink that entirely right now. And it turns out the way to rethink that also will help save the budget. Right, right. Before all of this happened, we were really gearing up here in Austin to put a transportation bond out onto the November election, which was going to, in large part, help expand transit, a a massive, massive expansion of transit. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if um, they feel like there is the the will to to see that through and whether uh, it actually does end up on on the ballot uh, this coming November. It's an interesting inflection point to be at. Prior to this happening, now was the time. And it had me quite excited because one of the things that I absolutely love about the Dutch system in the Netherlands, the combination of the bike transit is just, it's so magnificent. Let, let me digress for a minute because I, I love what you just described that, you know, how seamless that experience is in the Netherlands. You know, of course, other European cities, but particularly there. And I was in Rotterdam for a conference last July. And in my head, I was flying through Amsterdam. So my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to get to Amsterdam, take all that time, get off the plane, get my luggage. And then I'll probably have to wait for some period of time. I'll jump on this train and then the train's probably you know, what, maybe an hour or two to get down to Rotterdam from Amsterdam. And then once I got on the ground, it was just crazy how seamless it was. I was out of the airport onto a train and all the way in, into Rotterdam. You know, basically it was like 27 minutes. <laughs> like I was in a completely different large city, passing through many small cities because the 
transit headways were so frequent, the proximity of the actual station inside the airport was right there. The ride itself, the train was fast and the train was efficient and it dropped me right into the center of Rotterdam and my hotel was like four minute walk from that transit station. I should have known that the two cities were that close physically, but even so, like even if something is, you know, best case scenario, a 20 minute trip in, in, in America, that's going to be an hour no matter what. You're going to wait 10 minutes on one end, wait for 10 minutes on the other end. You may not have a walkable street to get there. Like the whole thing just gets elongated and the proximity and the integration of the, the various transit systems there uh, is, is truly marvelous. And we have pretty much nothing like that in the United States. Right. Mike, any final thoughts you'd like to make sure that we cover? Final thought. You know, I think there's just so many opportunities for us as a movement right now to think about our cities differently. And it's a real wake up call for that. There's going to be a lot of challenges and a lot of stresses that will come out of this, this pandemic for sure. But I think if we keep, you know, pushing and organizing and leading cities to help make some more proactive decisions about livability and transportation and, and what is best to invest in, I think that's really the, the key takeaway longer term, say mid to long term from this moment. I say in the short term, just be kind to everybody that is in your city at this moment. It's, everyone's feeling a lot of stress in all sorts of different directions, work stress, personal stress, health stress, city stress, right? So being kind is a really important thing that I'm trying to remind myself every day in my limited interactions with the outside world at this point is everyone's in a hard place and everyone's likely to be in a hard place for quite some time, but you know, we can get through it together. Yeah. And I, you mentioned it right at the, at the forefront is that one of the positive things that you're noticing is the fact that people are being more kind and being more sociable at a distance. And we're seeing that even here in Austin, uh, out on the streets, people are just, you know, smiling and waving and I think it was uh, Victor and, and Raphael in, in a previous uh, podcast episode where they talked about how people are starting to explore their neighborhoods a little bit more. They're starting to discover little nooks and crannies. And I hope that is something that we can hold on to. This concept of you know smiling and waving and saying hello to complete strangers is is really cool. It's it's like a momentary interaction, you know, three seconds, two seconds most. But it's it's so cool to see, and I hope that we hang on to that. It's like living in New Orleans every day. <laughs> New Orleans has that culture, that street culture, that friendliness that you don't find in most places in the U.S. But yeah, this is an excuse for us all to practice that more. I think you're right. That's a huge benefit socially that can come from that. And that, that builds bonds and trust in each other to, you know, the next time we go through some struggles to be able to lean on each other as neighbors and as, as city residents, for sure. You know, New York has always had a reputation of people being rude here. And it's, it's, it's not actually the case. You know, people are not going to, you know, we're already up in each other's space all day long. You know, we're not going to further invade people's space. Sometimes it's kind of the vibe. But I found that in moments like this, the city shines, you know, as brightly as any city culturally in terms of being able to help people and help neighbors. And, you know, I'll just give a quick anecdote. My very first lesson in that goes back to the first year I lived in New York, which is 2009. And I was biking down Broadway and I was turning left onto to Grand Street, which has, you know, at that time was one of the newer protected bike lanes. I'm turning left and I go across a street grate and that street grate was wet because it just started to snow and my back tire skidded out from underneath me. And I'm on Broadway. This is a busy street, right? This is not really the place to fall in the middle of an intersection. And you know, I didn't have a chance to blink and four strangers were there to help pick me up, get me out of the way of any oncoming traffic and make sure that I was okay. And it was at that moment where I was like, okay, this is the best of New York. And New York has that innately because we share so much together 
um, out of necessity. So once these, you know, these moments really tap into that spirit, and again, I'm with you, I think if we can expand that a little um, and always be a little bit kinder and open, that's going to be a great thing that comes out of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So the final thing I like each of my guests to end the episodes with is a, a little bit of sage advice to those folks out there in their cities that are trying to push the livability forward just a, a little bit. It's this rock they're trying to push up the hill. What advice do you have for them coming out of uh, out of this challenging period of time? Yeah, one is obviously keep at it, but um, two, you know, trust each other. And I think the trust really has to come from, I'd say, both sides of let's say the advocacy community and the city leadership and political community. And at Street Plans, we are so often a bridge wedged between those two types of groups. We really feel like we are personally, my partner and I and our staff, we feel like advocates for these issues, very strong advocates. But we also understand that within a system of governance, there's all sorts of layers and challenges. And so any one person who's working at a city personally can be as big or bigger of an advocate for the issues than you are as someone who's an advocate on the outside, right? But the systems that are at play make enacting that in a way that's ideal very challenging. So, you know, seeing this as an ecosystem where cities can probably trust nonprofits and advocates and residents and businesses more to have a role to step up and play a role in moments like this just as advocates and business owners, nonprofits can be empathetic to the challenges and the constraints of working inside of a, you know, a city government. If we both can fundamentally understand that and have a little more trust, and look, we all want a better city, um, how we exactly accomplish that is, is something that we have to collectively do together and not war over it. So you know, as, as much as I've been critical of, of New York in the last couple of weeks and its response to this, you know, I know how challenging and constrained the resources are. I know there's bigger priorities in some very, very fundamental ways at the moment. And I think we all need to have that perspective that yes, push and push hard and keep at it, but know collectively that this is all moving in the right direction and we all have roles to play in that. Yeah. Well said, sir. Mike, thank you so very much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and look forward to seeing you uh, up at CNU in uh, the Twin Cities. We're keeping our fingers crossed that that will uh, continue to uh, move forward and happen. Once again, thank you so very much. Uh, stay healthy, stay fit, stay active. We'll get back with you soon. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. And thank you, folks, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Mike Leiden. And if you did, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred listening platform, as well as uh, tell a friend, share the word about uh, the podcast. Let's grow this movement. I have some great episodes coming up, including Chuck Marone with Strong Towns, as well as Mark Nikita from the city of Birmingham, Michigan, and Archive DS out of Detroit. So until next time, this is John signing off, wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.